Hello and welcome to the After Dinner Podcast. My name is John Keeley, and this is the podcast extension of ROI Show 529. Our noted guest for today is Dr. Mm -hmm. Megan Henning, Associate Professor of Christian Origins at the University of Dayton, who will be talking to us about Hell Hath No Fury, gender, disability, the body, and the conceptualization of suffering in ancient Christian depictions of hell. The history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Rick Sweet. And Rick, since you've already told us about your damnation in the last show, why don't you start us off? And nothing can affect me from this point on. <laughs> Ma- Megan, uh, the title of your book uh, includes gender, disability, and the body. We did pound the conceptualization of suffering in hell. Uh, I would imagine women were fourth-class citizens, uh, people who had disabilities weren't even considered human, and I suspect the the body. Uh, we go to Saint Ag- uh, Augustine for his whoring before he found Christ. Is that is that, these things going to send you to hell? Yes. So um, in one chapter of the book, I talk specifically about how um, the sins that are enumerated in these different texts. Um, Because I'm looking at texts from the 2nd century all the way through, like, the 8th or ninth century. So because they build on each other and have many of the same punishments, I can also compare them and see when they have different punishments. And that is allowing me to, as a historian, contextualize, okay, like, what what are the differences? and, And how do those relate to the time in which this given apocalyptic text is written? So in all of these texts, the sins are gendered in the sense that they are based off of a Roman household hierarchy, especially those second century apocalypses. So um, the apocalypse of Peter has the sinners kind of organized in according to what we would call the household code, a very strict like Roman hierarchical structure in which husband um, and household owners are at the top and then their wives are after them, and then their um, children and enslaved persons. And that's exactly how the punishments are ordered in the apocalypse of Peter. Um, so right off the bat, you have this idea that certain people's um, sins matter more, and that the, um, the way in which um, morality is to be structured is, to be, is on this, this social hierarchy that is also gendered. Um, but the punishments are also, the sins are also gendered in that um, over time, certain sins get attached in particular ways to particular performances of gender in the culture. So in the earliest um, discussions of sins pertaining to parenthood, um, abortion, infanticide, and um, exposure, in the earliest instances of these conversations, men and women are both held accountable for these things. And as time goes on, the men fall out of the picture. And all of the sins related to parenthood are women's purview and women only. And in fact, in some of the medieval texts, a woman can be punished, not just for those things that I already mentioned, but for failing to nurse another person's child. If she sees an orphan on the street that is hungry and she does not offer them her breath, she is in hell having her breath gnawed at by beasts. So there's not only a double standard as we go forward in time, 
but parenthood is like almost exclusively the responsibility of women. Um, the same thing happens with adultery, where um, women in particular are held accountable according to Roman standards of um, sexuality and sexual norms and dress. So, um, so the sins themselves are gendered, and then the punishments um, are gendered in the sense that bodies are made female and disabled in health. The punishment is that you inhabit a womanly uh, impaired body for all of eternity. And that I, for that, I drew especially on ancient ideas about the body that relate to um, gender. And, and I got these from both ancient medicine and from early Christian authors, like, for example, Clement of Alexandria, who is himself drawing upon a kind of medicalized understanding of theology and the human body. So um, the, the way in which gender and disability play into this is that they help these authors create both a system of sins and punishments, and they help the authors describe punishments imaginatively. <laughs> wow, a religion that's um, sexist. I, I'm, I'm baffled. Um, really, really happy, happy. <laughs> yes. Black. You look at a variety of texts across a range of uh, both time and space. Do you see distinct differences in conceptions of hell based on geography? I'm thinking of, you know. Yes. Northern Europe thinking of hell is more dark and cold. Yeah. So um, you, the, a number of the traditions that I'm talking about are popular in, um, in we think North Africa and then circulate in Africa. Um, we have there, we have almost exclusive focus on, um, well, actually we have the household order pieces there. You also have the, um, the depictions of um, fire that are being pulled in from apocalyptic literature more generally, but also um, amplified. And then you also have um, Eastern traditions. So if you if you look, a number of the texts that I look at are not specifically apocalypses. They're actually part of the Dormition narrative that are associated with Mary's Dormition. And the litur- they were used liturgically. Um, for quite some time, and in those texts, as Mary tours hell as part of this Dormition narrative, you have a real focus on um, both um, sins of kind of liturgical hypocrisy. So, like, you have a priest who's being punished for his for leading others astray. You have um, a focus on redemption as well. So all of the Marian traditions are very much focused on how it is that Mary and her special relationship with Jesus is able to affect um, mercy for the damned. And that is um, something that is we see specifically in, in texts that are associated, that are circulating widely in, in Eastern Christianity and also being used liturgically there. Um, so not just like geog- geographic connections in terms of like the images used, but more geographic connections in terms of the popularity of particular kinds of 
um, soteriology or, or ideas about the afterlife. Okay, so to, to ask this, um, are there individuals out there that reject St. Augustus's and others' in interpretation of this while these thoughts are being figured out, as Brett pointed out, that there was a whole bunch of other um, sources thrown in to try and create, uh, you know, our definition of Christianity. Um, are there uh, people of powerful positions saying, no, Augustus's view is, is too harsh, too extreme, or is that pretty much not brought up? Yeah, well, so for example, Augustine doesn't think that the Apocalypse of Peter and the Apocalypse of Paul should be read because he doesn't think they're strong enough. And <laughs> yet we have canon lists that Apocalypse of Peter is, is in the list, right? So the Moratorian Fragment, for example, has Apocalypse of Peter as like one of the texts. And then it has a little caveat and says, although some people don't think that this should be read in church. <laughs> so it doesn't say why. Um, so there's, there, it's clear from that little snippet in that fragmentary text that this is both an important enough text and tradition that some people are including it in their canon list, but it's also being talked about whether that's appropriate or not. Um, and so I think this is a live point of conversation for some time. And I also think that that's why we have a number of copies of these texts. So the Apocalypse of Paul and the Greek Apocalypse of Mary circulate quite widely, which is how Dante gets his hands on it. So, um, so these are these are not like fringe literature, even though Augustine says this is not a useful vision of hell. Um, so I, I think that there is a, a pretty big range of attitudes towards this tradition and these texts. And, and I think that it's popular for in, in ways that we don't haven't thought about very thoroughly until recently. Okay, Rick. Well, I I want to touch on um, disability. I would imagine because life was so harsh and brutal that there are people with uh, uh, malnutrition diseases uh, you know, epilepsy, all kinds. These people were condemned from the get-go? Okay, so I want to be clear about that, that um, the bodies of people with disabilities are being used to depict the punishment. In, in, there are okay. some cases in which people with disabilities are being punished, but it's, it's more the case that the punishments themselves disable the characters in in hell. And so disability is being depicted as a punishment. But you're, it's important to note that part of why this is being used as a punishment is that a much larger portion of the population has a disability in antiquity than today. So today, we it's between 25 and 35% of the population has a disability. In antiquity, it's more like 80%. Oh, okay. um, so there's no corrective eyewear, for example, right? So if you live you know, what in antiquity is considered a long life, you will be losing your vision along the way, right? Like that is, um, and you will die much earlier than people do today. Um, Women die earlier than men in almost every period in antiquity. And we know that from osteoarchaeological evidence. And what many people posit is the reason for this is, of course, that their women are being expected to have children 
very frequently and in rapid succession, and they don't have prenatal vitamins, right? So their body's not ever restoring those nutrients, and their bones are breaking down, and their organs are suffering. So, um, so yes, um, disability is being used to depict damnation, and yes, disability is close at hand because people could expect that at some point in their life they would become disabled. Uh, and it would be sooner rather than later. But the question that I'm asking is, if you use disability to depict the punishment for sin, what is the rhetorical effect of that on the hearer or the reader? And it, the answer that I have given is that I think the, it's the impact that it has is that it directly associates disability with sin and with the punishment for sin, um, and that this then intensifies a concept that, um, at least in John 9, Jesus rejects completely, right? So um, the idea that that disability was associated with sin was an idea in ancient culture. In John 9, we have an instance of Jesus saying, no, that's incorrect. And in these texts, we have images that not only draw on that idea, they make it stronger. Brett. So how do early ideas about purgatory uh, play into this? Do, do they arise after these depictions of hell have already been kind of settled and agreed upon? Or uh, is purgatory yeah. an integral part of the development? Um, purgatory is definitely being developed alongside this. Um, Helen Foxhall Forbes is working right now on a two-volume history of purgatory that I'm very much looking forward to because the history of that idea really need, does need some attention. Um, and that's going to come out with Oxford University Press. But I, I think um, while we're waiting for her work um, to emerge, I think the big question is to what extent is that informing Christian practice? And at least in my earliest texts, which are written in the second century or even in the gospel text, that's not really on the horizon yet. That's not really in the picture. Um, it's, it's later centuries that you start to see um, practices around death that are, are being woven into those traditions. And you don't have, in the text that I am studying, you don't have um, interim spaces but there are other apocalyptic texts that do have kind of neutral holding spaces for people after death. So that is a bigger question that I haven't spent as much time on, but I, it, the idea of purgatory is developing alongside of the idea of multidimensional afterlife that we get in the text that I'm looking at. Okay. We would like to thank our noted guest for the 529th show, Dr. Megan Henning, Associate Professor of Christian Origins at the University of Dayton, who talked to us about Hell Hath No Fury, gender, disability, the body, and the conceptualization of suffering in ancient Christian depictions of hell. The history buffs for today's show were Brett Menard and Rick Sweet. ROI can also be found at 9.30 p.m. Friday nights on KALA Radio or on the web at TuneIn.com. If you're looking for older programs, you'll find them at SoundCloud.com. Just put KALA Radio in the search, click on the first icon, and scroll down to find nearly a decade of ROI shows. 
You can also find ROI on all your favorite streaming platforms. This is ROI recorded at Station KALA, St. Ambrose University.